Hello my friends, Yoski Broskis and Broskiettes, and welcome to another edition of the Royal Ramble. A pretty quiet edition this week if I do say so myself. Not really much to talk about, right? Wrong! Wowzers, what an action-packed weekend filled with lots and lots and lots of wrestling matches. I mean, gosh, I must have watched about a hundred matches in the last three days alone. My Saturday was a complete write-off for any social interaction. So I'm just going to get right into it because otherwise we'll be here all night. And I'm going to start with the one non-wrestling event from this weekend. Well, non-wrestling in the sense that there wasn't any in-ring action, although the set might have thrown me off a bit. And that's the WWE Hall of Fame ceremony from Friday night. Speaking of that set though, I don't know what the motivation was behind hosting the ceremony in the same arena as SmackDown, and in a wrestling ring for that matter. It just seemed very low budget to me and didn't really seem like a big enough deal like past ceremonies have been being in an amphitheater. I'm especially surprised after the Bret Hart incident of 2019 that they didn't go back to the amphitheater setting. But this is the choice they made and fortunately there were no angry fans storming the ring this time around and none of the inductees got slapped. The first inductees this year were Rick and Scott, the Steiner brothers, inducted by Rick's son, Scott's nephew, Braun Breaker from NXT. And have we officially reached the point now where we can finally start calling him Steiner? I think it's even past that point. But in any event, Breaker had the line of the night saying that he's taking the biggest risk of his career passing the microphone off to his uncle Scott. But fortunately, the censors didn't need to work overtime as there were no curse words exiting the mouth of Big Papa Pump this year. He did do most of the talking though for the team. So I first became familiar with the Steiners by playing one of the WCW video games on the original Nintendo. And they were two of the playable characters. I had seen a couple of their matches here and there, but wasn't really regularly watching WCW at the time. However, when they got to the WWE, their reputation had preceded them. I certainly knew who they were, even though I had never seen much of them in the ring, and I had a Scott Steiner action figure as well. The first match I remember them having was against the Beverly Brothers at a Royal Rumble event, and I was immediately blown away by their in-ring performances, especially Scott Steiner. He was pulling out moves that I had never previously seen before, and I was from then on a Steiner Brother fan for life. I didn't much care for them when they returned to WCW in the mid-90s as they seemed pretty bland compared to the other tag teams at the time, and at this point I was watching more regularly. But when the brothers split and Scott developed the Big Papa Pump character, I was a fan again. In fact, I thought he had such a cool look, and I tried so hard to convince my mother to let me bleach my hair so I could look like him. That plan didn't pan out unfortunately, but he was always a favorite of mine. So Scott takes the mic at the ceremony and tells a story about his first meeting with the Macho Man Randy Savage and how they stopped at a farm one time on the way to an arena and Savage bets Scott that he could make one of the cows come to him before Steiner could make one come to him. It was kind of a random story to tell but the best part was hearing Scott try to moo like a cow. He also talked about his numerous road partners including his brother Lex Luger and the late Owen Hart. I guess I really shouldn't be, but I was kind of surprised that they didn't get too much into WCW stories. The next inductee was introduced by Booker T, who proudly brought out his wife Charmel. And look, people have been complaining for weeks about how she shouldn't be inducted and doesn't deserve it, and hasn't had much of a career and all that, but who are we as fans to even say? 
I think fans can sometimes be entitled, and the fact is, she wasn't really a wrestler, nor was she inducted as a wrestler, but she was in the business for at least five or six years, and has had some memorable moments. And even if she hadn't, it's not our Hall of Fame, it's WWE's. They can put in whoever they want. But I thought Charmel looked great, and she had a pretty good speech. Like the Steiner, she didn't get to go on for too long. She thanked everyone she had worked with, including her husband Booker, Kurt Angle, although I was desperately trying to erase that dreadful gutter slut angle from my memory, and Rey Mysterio. She also acknowledged her two children with Booker who were seated at ringside and promoted her and Booker's school. The next induction was very tough to watch. It was a posthumous induction for former member of Crime Time, Shad Gaspard, who can definitely be called, as WWE often likes to say, a gentle giant. The video nearly brought me to tears. I truly appreciate what he did for his son, and the love he had for his family was unreal. I have to admit that when Crime Time was first introduced, I initially thought it was a hideous attempt at a racial stereotype, especially after they made reference to the Michael Richards scandal from 2006. But once the team was further developed, I thought they were a pretty good duo who I never thought was utilized to their full potential. The only thing I would have changed about this whole induction was to eliminate Dana Warrior from it. She clearly knew nothing about Shad, and seemed to be trying to memorize cue cards. But the rest of it was very touching, and I loved that Shad's former partner JTG walked his widow and son down the aisle. And the added touch of JTG doing the crime time signature high five with Shad's son. It was great. It was kind of weird though that they opted to have two posthumous inductions in a row, but the next one was equally as well deserved, and as most fans would say, it's about time. It's about Vader time. I wasn't pleased with how quickly Vader was inducted though by his widow and son Jake, a former wrestler as well. They spoke briefly about his career as well as his non-wrestling projects including guest starring appearances on hit TV shows such as Baywatch and Boy Meets World. Vader was another guy that even though I rarely watched WCW at the time I knew who he was. He had such a presence and an aura about him. He was similar to The Undertaker in that regard. It was more his character that won me over than anything he did in the ring, but his ring work was tremendous as well. In fact, I believe he was the first guy in North America to introduce the MMA style of pro wrestling, complete with his gloves, look, and overall fighting style. He could brawl, but he could also wrestle, and wrestle very well. His WWE run was less than impressive, but he got off to a good start with a hot angle involving Gorilla Monsoon, and then a program with Shawn Michaels for the WWE title. Unfortunately, he was another guy that WWE never really got the most out of, but someone who is certainly deserving of this high honor. And speaking of deserving, then came the big one, the main event. It was the induction of probably the greatest professional wrestling character of all time, The Undertaker. This is a guy that no matter what promotion you follow or are most interested in, whether it be WWE, WCW, ECW, AEW, TNA, ROH, whatever, literally everyone I have come across in life was at one time or another a fan of The Undertaker. That is a huge achievement for anyone. I missed Taker's actual WWE debut at Survivor Series 1990 live, but I did see highlights of the event on an episode of WWF Superstars, and I remember being absolutely mesmerized by his overall character and physical presence. I was so into his character that I dressed as him for Halloween one year. I still have a t-shirt from Canada's Wonderland with my face imprinted on it next to his. I cannot even count the number of classic Undertaker moments from my childhood.
Of course, him beating Hogan for the title was huge, and I also liked that he would slowly sit up after being knocked down, which was so unique at the time. I remember watching the casket match with Yokozuna, and how he overcame 10 guys by himself before eventually being defeated. I remember him standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the nearly 8-foot giant Gonzalez, and the look on Gonzalez's face when Taker came back after being smothered with a cloth filled with chloroform. I was one of the few who actually liked his American badass gimmick, as it not only humanized him a little bit, but was also believable that he could walk into any bar and win any fight in the place. He totally lived the gimmick and was one of the more underrated promos of all time. So Vince McMahon did the introduction and basically went through a list of guys The Undertaker had faced and defeated, including Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena, Batista, and of course Shane McMahon. Interesting that Taker was already a huge star when all of those guys became stars, even before most of them debuted. And to the best of my knowledge, he is one of only three guys that Vince McMahon has personally inducted, which says a lot. Taker didn't even need a microphone, he went all Tony Robbins and started speaking straight from the heart, talking about some of the people he's worked with and had the best times with, including his best friends in a locker room group called the Bone Street Crew, consisting of the Godfather, who was one of the only ones from the group there alive, the late Yokozuna and the late Brian Adams, and I believe the Godwins were also part of that, as was Rikishi, who was also there live. Taker then talked about memories of wanting to become a wrestler and talking about how he was conflicted one day at his brother's house, thinking about either going overseas to play basketball or trying out to be a wrestler. His parents, like most parents, were against the idea at first, but eventually became his biggest fans and supporters. He talked about his greatest rivalries with Shawn Michaels, Kane, and Triple H, and the love of his wife Michelle McCool and all of his children, including the two he had with Michelle, who were there live as well. It was a very exciting moment for sure, and Taker ended it by placing a jacket and hat on from one of the mannequins behind him in the ring, and ended the speech with the words, Never say never. You know, I'd personally love to see him in the ring again, but I don't know if his body can take anymore. But that's up to him and his doctors. What an amazing career. All this, and that was only Friday. And that's not even mentioning the various wrestling events taking place that night. But there was also last night, well, actually starting in the afternoon with the big NXT show, Stand and Deliver. The event started with a kickoff show match, and unfortunately for me, my network was airing NXT Roadblock for some reason, so I had to wait to get the live feed, which only happened at the start of the main card, so I missed the women's tag title match between defending champs Toxic Attraction and the team of Raquel Gonzalez and Dakota Kai. But they did air a recap during the main card, so I am for the first time thankful for the recaps. The end came where Wendy Chu did a run-in, causing the distraction, and leading to a huluva kick from Dakota to JC Jane in the corner, and then Raquel finished Jane off with a single-arm powerbomb to claim the belts for herself and her frenemy Dakota. Can't say I'm all that shocked by this outcome, but I am somewhat shocked by the outcome of the later title match, but I'll get into that in a bit. The main card starts with a five-way ladder match for the North American title. It was Carmelo Hayes defending against Cameron Grimes, Grayson Waller, Santos Escobar, and Sola Sokoa, who is the younger brother of the Usos. Immediately, I noticed that Sokoa, Waller, and Escobar didn't get an entrance on the main show, which signaled to me that none of them were winning. What was up with that? Were they really trying to save time? I mean, they had an awful lot of filler on this show. 
The other thing I didn't care for in this match is with five participants, why did they need so many extra bodies out there taking bumps? Carmelo had Trick with him, Santos had his Legato entourage, and Waller had Sanga. It was just so unnecessary for everyone to be involved, and it just turned into a major spot fest at times. But despite that one criticism, overall I found this match to be quite enjoyable. There were a couple of times when guys tried to do dives to the floor, but Sanga just stood there like a brick wall, and I didn't know if it was because he doesn't know how to bump, or because being a bigger guy he's not supposed to. Whatever the case may be, some of those spots look very dangerous and awkward, specifically with Sokoa who almost landed on his face. Waller hit a nice cutter to Escobar off the ladder, and then Hayes delivered a springboard clothesline to Waller off the other side at another point in the match, which I kind of found puzzling. Why didn't he just pull him off? There was such a great spot later in the match where Santos did a flip bomb to Sokoa off the ladder, crashing him back first into another ladder set up in the corner. Trick Williams stormed the ring at one point trying to grab the belt for Carmelo, but his efforts were cut short literally by Sanga, who chopped the base of the ladder in half. With the ladder now in two separate pieces, Mendoza and Wild each grabbed a piece to sandwich Sanga, who was distracted by Lopez. There was another awkward spot in the match where Sokoa tried to catch Escobar in a fireman's carry, but couldn't support the weight and both guys crashed to the mat. Waller was at the top at one point, but saw someone laying below, and hesitated as he didn't know whether to grab the belt or hit a high-risk move. Fortunately, he did the smart thing of going for the belt, which I was hoping he would do, but the hesitation cost him, as Escobar climbed up the other side and delivered a Hurricane Rana off the top, but as he landed, he was almost immediately splashed by Sokoa. Waller then hit the dumbest but best looking move of the match with a froggy bow off the high ladder on the outside to an opponent on the ladder bridged between the ring and the barricade. But the opponent moves, causing Waller to crash and burn, basically taking him out of the match. The finish comes when Escobar hits a modified cradle shock pile driver on Hayes, but is then immediately hit with the cave-in from Grimes, who quickly scales the ladder to grab the belt to become the new North American champion. Tony D'Angelo rolls into the parking garage driving a Ford Galaxy 500, and he's also accompanied by AJ Galante, famous for Netflix Untold's Crime and Penalties. It seemed like D'Angelo was kinda late, considering that his match was up next against Tommaso Ciampa, which many believe is in fact Ciampa's last match. It was a good one though, and I thought definitely D'Angelo's best match to date. Ciampa grabs a water bottle from the announce desk and does his best Triple H impression to complete his entrance. He also hits a couple of Triple H moves in the early going, including a spine buster and face buster, but then has a hard time exposing the concrete floor, but eventually does get the mats off. Ciampa beats D'Angelo right out of his shirt, and D'Angelo comes back attempting to use a crowbar that he had hidden behind the ring steps, but the ref catches it and takes it away. As the ref is doing this, D'Angelo hits a low blow and then corkscrew fisherman suplex for a near fall. D'Angelo then retrieves the crowbar from the ring announcer, but before getting a chance to use it, Ciampa meets him coming into the ring with a draping DDT that he calls Willow's Bell. Ciampa follows up with a fairy tale ending for two, and then applies the Gargano escape, but D'Angelo eventually reaches the ropes for the break. On the floor, D'Angelo takes advantage of the exposed concrete with a DDT, and then throws Ciampa back in, and plants a swift kick to his face for the pin. This match, as I said, was pretty good, but I did think the finish was a little anticlimactic. Champa received a standing ovation and thank you chance from the crowd, signaling that it may actually be his last match, 
And just to dot that exclamation point, his mentor Triple H emerged from the locker room and embraced Champa before we went into the next segment. Apparently the Peacock feed for our American friends went to commercial during this, but I believe they did show the recap afterwards. The triple threat tag match was next for the NXT tag team titles with Imperium defending against MSK and the Creed Brothers of Diamond Mine. This match was very explosive and probably match of the night in my opinion. One man from each team was represented in the ring while their partners were on the apron. The Creed showed their dominance in the early going but Imperium took over from there with some high impact offense. MSK then mounted their comeback as Wes Lee hit an amazing cartwheel into a somersault plancha to the floor, shades of low-key, and what I like most about this is the attention to detail that his own partner was not in the group that Lee took out on the floor, which is usually the case that someone hits a move like that without caring who's in the group of guys being taken out. Back in the ring, Carter hits a swanton followed up by Lee with a spiral tap on one of the Imperium team members. That was a pretty cool sequence. Brutus Creed then uses all of his weight to hit a cannonball off the top into a group of opponents on the floor, and again, his partner was not in that group, so great attention to detail. But then Brutus was taken out by Imperium on the floor, which opened the door for MSK to take advantage as Lee delivered a Hurricane Rana off the top to Barthel, who was caught by Carter with a sit-out powerbomb for the win, and MSK are your new champions. A little surprising here, but no complaints from me. MSK are a great team, and I hope they have a solid run. There's a Nikita Lions promo pack up next, and then a live promo from Cameron Grimes, who dedicates his win to his dad. There's also a weird Joe Gacy promo about JFK's assassination at Daly's place in Dallas, basically encouraging fans to stop focusing on tragedy and instead focus on peace. The fatal four-way match for the women's title is up next, with Mandy Rose defending against Cora Jade, Kaylee Ray, and Io Shirai. I will say that the two additions to this match definitely made it much better to watch, although like D'Angelo's match earlier, I thought this was Cora Jade's best performance to date, and it definitely helps to be in there with seasoned veterans like Kaylee Ray and Io Shirai. Mandy had a cool entrance similar to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 25, which also happened to be in Texas, as she descended from a platform like she's an angel. There was a weird spot to start this match, with all three challengers backing Mandy into a corner, and she ends up fighting them off, which isn't usually common for heels of her type. Later on in the match, there was a dangerous sequence involving the announce table where Kaylee Ray delivers a somersault off the buckles to Cora Jade on the outside, who looked like she hit her head on the table behind her, and then Io climbs the other side with a moonsault, which also lands dangerously close to the table. Fortunately, it looked like everyone was okay after that. There was a good spot where Kaylee locked on the Koji clutch on Mandy, while Io had the Cloverleaf on Korra at the same time, so everyone was wondering who would tap first, but eventually both submissions were broken. Jade hit an amazing looking destroyer on Kaylee Ray on the apron, which was one of the best deliveries of that move on the ring apron I've ever seen. From my angle, it looked flawless. However, I would still avoid doing those types of moves in general. The end comes when Kaylee hits a gory bomb, or KLR bomb as she calls it, on Jade, but Eo breaks it up and hits the moonsault, only for Mandy to take advantage with a running knee to Eo, and I think Mandy was actually supposed to pin Jade here, but she kinda just fell into the cover on Eo and went with it, which made a lot more sense, so she keeps the belt. This was another surprising finish, especially after Toxic Attraction lost the tag belts, which I figured would telegraph that Mandy would lose this one, 
but I guess they wanted to give Korra her moment with a one-on-one -on -one victory, which makes a lot more sense. Ugh, the next couple of segments were gigantic wastes of time, as they are on NXT every week. Basically, Indy Hartwell and Persia Parada are competing with each other to see which one of their relationships is the better one and which is the hotter couple, so they end up dressing their men as cowboys. I thought Duke Hudson had the best line, or rather the only good line, when Indy was asking Persia, what are you doing here, and Persia was asking Indy, what are you doing here, and then Hudson asked both, what am I doing here? I thought that was pretty funny, but the rest of this whole thing was not. I was bored to tears, and then they did a live interview where they revealed the fans' votes, an index won by a significant margin. This causes the guys to start brawling, and eventually they're all separated by referees. This sucked. Back to wrestling, Gunther vs LA Knight was next. It wasn't either of their better matches, but still okay. Gunther hit a powerbomb on the apron early on as the crowd broke into Goldberg chants. Knight came back with a power slam on the floor and then his own version of the people's elbow in the ring. Knight showed an impressive display of strength, hitting a modified KOD for a near fall, but Gunther came back with a clothesline off the top rope, and then a splash to the back that had been weakened earlier in the match, and then finally finishing Knight off with a powerbomb. So then we got to the main event. It was Dolph Ziggler accompanied by Big Bob defending the NXT Heavyweight title against Braun Breaker with two Ks. For some reason, Breaker came out with a chainsaw. I took my bathroom break around this time, so I didn't notice what he did with it, but there was an NXT logo at ringside, so he likely did some damage to that. He was also wearing an outfit very similar to his uncle when he first developed the Big Papa Pump gimmick. There was a scary spot in the early going where Ziggler tried to leap over Braun, but Braun caught him and they both fell backwards with Ziggler landing on his head. He seemed to be okay afterward, and then they went into a sequence where Ziggler tried to leapfrog again, but Braun countered into a power slam. I believe this is what they were trying the first time, but they botched it. Rue tried to get involved at one point and was quickly ejected from ringside by the referee. There was a nice spot where Breaker hit a Frankensteiner off the top for a near fall, and then delivered a military press into a power slam, but Rude returned and yanked Ziggler away from the pin, which should have been a DQ. Breaker took both Dirty Dogs out on the floor with a tope con hilo, but was met back in the ring with a Famouser followed by the zigzag for a near fall. Breaker tried to put Ziggler away with another press slam, but Ziggler poked him in the eye, and then kicked him face first into the buckle and hit a super kick for the very surprising victory, and Ziggler keeps the belt. This was the most surprising outcome of the night, I thought, but I would assume it means Breaker is moving on up to the main roster. So that was NXT, but the day didn't end there because we also had the first night of what is called the most stupendous two-night WrestleMania of all time. I mean, with only three of those, it's not hard to do, I guess. Country music star Brantley Gilbert kicks things off with his rendition of America the Beautiful. Well, I guess he's a star. I mean, I'm not a country music fan or anything, but the ring announcer seemed to have a lot of things to say about him before his performance, so that's something. The opening video had an introduction to the event by actor Mark Wahlberg, similar to the LL Cool J intro for WrestleMania 31, though little strange that a guy from Boston would be chosen to lead us into WrestleMania in Dallas. Speaking of Dallas, we were also blessed with a cheerleading routine by the world-famous Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, and that led into the first match. It was for the SmackDown Tag Team titles, with the Usos turning back the challenge of Rick Boogs and Shinsuke Nakamura.
It was kind of weird to position this match as the opener as it seemed to be more like a break in the action type encounter and not something to get the crowd riled up. There was a tragic incident in this one though that kind of played into the finish where Boogs attempted to lift both Usos on his shoulders in a fireman's carry but his knee buckled and he ended up being taken out of the match, allowing the Usos to take advantage of a 2-on-1 situation on Nakamura with a 1D to keep their titles. It was later reported that Boogs is indeed legitimately injured. He suffered a torn quadricep patella requiring surgery, and it's unknown at this point how much time he will miss. But according to Dave Meltzer, this turn of events supposedly changed the finish. I don't know if that means we were supposed to get new champions, but these things, while unfortunate, do happen. Drew McIntyre vs. Happy Corbin was up next. McIntyre attempted a claymore, but Moss reached in and pulled Corbin out, so McIntyre exploded over the top rope with a tope suicida taking out both guys. McIntyre was able to counter the end of days by rolling through and then headbutted Corbin, but missed the second claymore attempt, allowing Corbin to hit the end of days, but Drew kicked out, and Cole noted that it was the first time anyone has ever kicked out of that move. If I cared enough about Corbin, I'd look that up, but I'm going to give Cole the benefit of the doubt here. McIntyre came back with a Future Shock DDT, followed by the Claymore, which he finally hit for the win. After the match, Moss climbed onto the ring apron, but Drew stopped him with a sword and chopped the top rope apart, which freaked Moss right out. The first celebrity match of the show was next. It was a tag match featuring YouTube sensation Logan Paul and The Miz against Ray and Dominic Mysterio. This was not one of the matches I was personally looking forward to, but I must say it was a pleasant surprise as I was mostly pleasantly surprised by the performance of Paul in this match. I thought he looked great, and I don't just mean for a celebrity, he's definitely got the right kind of heat. Logan Paul nearly got booed out of the building when he delivered the Eddie Guerrero Three Amigos on Ray, and then the Frog Splash, but Dominic broke the pin, or at least was supposed to. He kinda missed the cue, and Ray had to kick out. The Mysterios then hit double 619s on Paul, and Dom connected with a frog splash, but Miz, off a blind tag, slammed Ray on top of the pin, and then hit the skull-crushing finale on Ray for the win. As the heels were celebrating their victory, Miz suddenly hit his own partner, Logan Paul, with the skull-crushing finale as well. This was kind of interesting, and I'm curious to hear Miz's explanation, but it does make the most sense, as Miz is the guy sticking around full-time, and he needs the heat. Plus, they can definitely build to a Miz vs. Logan Paul match either at SummerSlam this year or next year's Mania in Los Angeles. The WWE's chief branding officer, Stephanie McMahon, was then introduced, and she brought out one of the WWE's newest signees, Gable Steveson, but it was still never made clear as to when Steveson will make his official in-ring debut. That's another one I would actually save for a pay-per-view. Becky Lynch defended the Raw women's title against Bianca Belair up next. They teased the same finish of the SummerSlam match in the early going as I thought they might. Bianca extended her hand, and Becky again tried to sucker her into a manhandle slam, but this time Bianca countered and tried the KOD, but Becky flipped through and actually did hit the manhandle slam for a near fall. I thought this match was pretty good. Perhaps not as good as some of the previous matches they had, but pretty decent. There was a neat spot on the floor where Bianca charges at Becky against the apron, but Becky presses her up and Bianca bounces her legs off the rope and springs back with a suplex to Becky on the floor. Back in the ring, Bianca has Becky up in a firewoman's carry on the middle rope and then just drops her chest first onto the turnbuckle and follows up with a 450 splash for two. Becky uses Bianca's braid to whip her into the post. 
She then tries another manhandle slam, but Bianca does a backflip off the middle turnbuckle, and with Becky disoriented, she scoops her from behind for the KOD for the final three count to claim the title. This was a great culmination to a well-told story, but I question if it was the plan all along, or if their original plans fell through. I hope they at least do right by Bianca and give her a decent run, and not just have her lose to Charlotte in two months. Her and Becky shouldn't even touch each other again until at least SummerSlam. Seth Rollins comes out to the ring for the next match and starts getting the crowd riled up, and then the lights go out, and the now-famous tattoo appears as a graphic on the screen to signal the WWE return of the American Nightmare Cody Rhodes as Seth's opponent. This was a fantastic entrance, and I'm truly surprised that they let Cody keep his AEW theme music. There's a feeling-out process in the early going, but as Cody negotiates a few arm drags, he mocks his previous character with a little Stardust taunt, which was a nice touch. Cody then suplexes Seth over the top rope, and both guys go crashing to the floor. Cody attempts the beautiful disaster kick off the steel steps, but Seth attempts to catch him, but they kinda just both tumble. Seth got up first and powerbombed Cody into the barricade beside the announce desk. Back in the ring, there was a tremendous spot by Seth, who delivered a reverse superplex and then rolled through with an inverted implant DDT. Cody responded by running up the ropes and springing back into the ring with a cutter. Seth then hit a pedigree and a few strikes, but Cody was able to bounce back with two consecutive deliveries of the crossroads, followed by the flip, flop, and fly, and then a third crossroads, finally putting Seth away. This match was awesome. The Hall of Fame inductees were brought out next, and then we go into what I thought would be the final wrestling match of the evening, which was Charlotte Flair defending her SmackDown Women's Championship against Ronda Rousey. I just wasn't feeling this one tonight. Something was way off. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but they've had much better matches. Rousey hit a tornado flatliner move at one point, which looked pretty crazy. She then started ragdolling Charlotte around, but got a little too cocky, allowing Charlotte to hit a spear out of nowhere. Charlotte attempted the double flip moonsault, but botched it badly, and it looked very awkward. Rousey hit the Piper's Pit and went for the armbar, but Charlotte impressively countered into a figure four attempt, which Rousey re-countered into an ankle lock, but Charlotte kicked her way free. Charlotte did apply the figure eight later on, but Rousey rolled onto her stomach, and then both women kind of just rolled into the ropes for the break. The finish was kind of dumb. Rousey kicked out of the natural selection, but as Charlotte attempted another figure eight, Rousey kicks her right into the referee Charles Robinson, knocking him out, and then Rousey finally gets the armbar, causing Charlotte to tap out, but with the ref down, it didn't count. Rousey broke the hold to go check on the ref, allowing Charlotte to land a big boot and pin Ronda to keep the belt. This ending was terrible. My understanding was that there was supposed to be a tag match featuring New Day against Sheamus and Ridge Holland, which was either moved to tonight's show or bumped from the card altogether. Honestly, I don't think anyone would even notice. But closing out night one was the KO show with special guest Stone Cold Steve Austin. Kevin Owens came out and immediately started insulting Texas. Owens was tremendous here and the fans loved to hate him. He was definitely getting the right kind of heat. He said if America was a human body, Texas would be the ass. He then said he would like to apologize to the people of Texas for speaking the truth. He calls Stone Cold Steve Austin the worst role model in the history of the WWE, and he'd love to just tell him how much he thinks he sucks right to his face. 
saying that Austin won't do anything about it because if he shows Owens any disrespect, KO will drop him with a stunner and then pour beer all over his stupid bald head. Before Owens can get another word out, the glass shatters and Austin comes out to a massive pop. He briefly heads to the back but comes back out on his ATV as KO looks on from ringside very unimpressed. Austin gets into the ring and tosses the KO show sign out to the floor. Owens then invites Austin to have a seat so they can talk, and Austin says that after all the trash KO has been talking about Texas and himself, that he wants to have a conversation. Austin calls Owens a jackass, to which Owens admits that he has been making fun of Texas. He says the summers are hotter than hell, and the people look like idiots with their cowboy hats, boots, and belt buckles, and that they should all just move to Mexico. KO continues that he actually tricked Austin into agreeing to appear on this talk show because he actually wanted to have a fight. KO then challenges Austin to a match right then and there, which will be no holds barred, and says Austin knows that he can't beat Kevin Owens. Austin said he had his first match in Dallas, and now he'll be having his last match in Dallas. So he accepts, and a referee runs out to the ring at the request of Stone Cold, and the match is on. They start brawling, which Austin gets the better of, and the fight spills to the floor. KO gains the advantage and starts beating Austin with his tripod stand at ringside. He then sets up a table against the barricade, but Austin reverse Irish whips Owens into it. They continue brawling through the crowd, and Austin actually takes a suplex on the arena floor, which I have to say was impressive considering his limitations. KO then tries to drive Austin's ATV, but it wouldn't start, and Austin stops him, and he ends up driving the ATV with Owens on it up the ramp. Austin suplexes Owens a couple of times on the stage, and then knocks him right back down the ramp. Austin does his beer celebration a little too prematurely, as KO surprises him with a stunner for the near fall. KO then grabs a chair and swings, but he misses as the chair bounces off the rope and hits himself in the face, opening the door for Austin hit a stunner for the final three count, and probably the last one of Austin's career. All things considered, this was not bad. Austin then delivers another stunner after the match, and Owens is carried away by security. Austin then does his beer bash to close the show, but not before delivering a stunner to Byron Saxton just because. And that's a wrap, folks. That's also it for me, but only for a short while. I'll be back tomorrow with a full rundown of WrestleMania 38 Night 2, as well as a quick recap of some of the other events of the weekend. Until then, it's ABC. Ya.